So most of the time we go about our daily lives and we don't think about trade routes. We don't think about shipping vessels and containers. We simply go to the stores that we want to shop at and there is the product. The supply chain is often an unnoticed part of the global economy, kind of working in the background like an operating system. Right? When you open up your computer, there's apps and programs you want to use, but it takes that operating system that's working in the background to make it all work. That is until a massive shipping container gets stuck in the mud. Nobody was thinking about the Suez Canal until the Ever Given got stuck sideways and that major trade route was blocked. It's one of the most important trade routes in the world and over the last week the world watched as the Ever Given blocked the Egypt Suez Canal for six days. I don't know if you saw this in the news but the Ever Given is a golden class container ship. It's one of the largest in the world. It's 1,312 feet long. It weighs over 200,000 tons and it has a maximum capacity of 20,000 shipping containers. To put that in perspective, this ship is the size of the Empire State Building floating in this canal. And during a windstorm, the Ever Given lost sight of its bearings and it ran aground, blocking the 985 foot wide canal. Now, this canal connects the Mediterranean and the Red Seas, which ultimately uh, brings a connection to the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans, which shaves off thousands of miles, almost four weeks of travel, so that boats don't have to go around Africa's Cape of Good Hope. Now, some of you are thinking, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Every day that the canal was blocked, nine billion, not million, nine billion dollars in trade was stopped from getting to where it needs to go. So it's a almost 60 billion dollar problem. That's a big deal. During the six days that the Ever Given was stuck in the mud, hundreds of ships became backlogged. You could actually see them from satellite images waiting in the bays to get through this canal. And all that trade came to an abrupt standstill. Now, to free this boat, it took six days of excavating. You know those big excavators that when you're standing next to them look huge? Well, if you saw some of the pictures, these excavators next to this boat look like toys. And they're sitting there digging, and there's this whole pumping system removing the sediment. It took a spring high tide and 14 tugboats pulling and pushing to get the Ever Given unstuck so that it could get back on its way. And I share this as a modern parable because I wonder how many of us this morning came in through those doors feeling stuck. Just like the Ever Given was stuck in the mud, maybe this last year has you feeling stuck. The social distancing, the mask wearing, the lack of normalcy, the uncertainty, all of it combined together has you feeling stuck. Maybe it's not COVID and the pandemic. Maybe it's difficulty in relationships. Could be marriage relationships, could be friendships, could be relationships with family. Finding a spouse is hard, marriage is hard. Getting along with people is hard. Maybe it's parenting. Trying to love and lead children is on the one hand rewarding, but it's equally exhausting. 
Maybe where you feel stuck this morning is uh, pressure at work to perform. No matter what you do, it never seems good enough. Or there's this particular project you're working on that has you stuck. Maybe you're going through a particular trial right now where you're being treated unjustly. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a destructive pattern of behavior that you just can't kick. Maybe it's just the normal, everyday stuff of life. The monotonous grind of everyday living has got you feeling stuck. Any one of these problems and hundreds more can get you stuck in the mud. And it feels like no matter how hard you dig, no matter how many tugboats come to your aid, you can't get unstuck from the mud. And not to be a bearer of bad news this morning, but looming on the horizon before all of us is the great windstorm of death that comes for us all. Statistically speaking, one out of every one of you will die. That's 100%. There's no one exempt from that. And when that storm comes, you have to ask yourself, how will you get unstuck? from that this morning we're looking at Luke 24 13 to 35 it's the story of the seven mile road in fact it's where we get our name as a church and we're going to meet two disciples of Jesus who are walking back home from Jerusalem in the aftermath of the crucifixion of Jesus and they're trying to process all that's happened and they're having a conversation and they feel stuck The death of Christ has come like an uninvited windstorm, disorienting their headway, and now they're stuck in the mud. Their hopes have shattered. Their purpose is gone. All that eagerness and anticipation and excitement and expectation of where Jesus would lead them has turned to disappointment and despair. This passage in Luke 24 tells us how they got unstuck. And the good news is it's not just a passage about they got unstuck, but it's a passage of how life gets unstuck from death. And friends, is there any bigger question than how does life get unstuck from death? As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to learn two spiritual equations that dramatically impact how we live our lives. And if you weren't good at math in school, don't worry, these are easy equations. First, in verses 13 to 24, we're going to see that life minus resurrection equals despair. Life minus resurrection equals despair. Because without resurrection, there's no getting unstuck from death. And therefore, all of life ends in darkness and despair. And then the second equation we're going to look at in verses 25 to 32, we'll see that life plus resurrection equals hope. Life plus resurrection equals hope. Because of the resurrection, we can get unstuck from death and therefore there is hope. Let's start in verse 13 together to see our first equation. Life minus resurrection equals despair. So that very day, the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles. You get it, the seven-mile road. Seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, for these two disciples, it's been a wild and eventful weekend. Jesus, their leader, has been arrested, he's been executed, and he's been buried. 
There's even reports coming in right now that his body is missing from the tomb. But it doesn't matter because Jesus is dead and there's nothing left to do but to go home. To go home. So on the way, they're reviewing what's happened. Have you ever experienced something traumatic and you just need to talk to someone about it? You need to process it. You need to, even though you were both there, you kind of rehearse the events and the timelines of things that happened. And it helps you emotionally and spiritually deal and cope with what's happened. See, when you've experienced what they've experienced, seeing your hopes dashed on a Roman cross, you need to process it. And that's what they're doing as they walk along the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus draws near and starts walking with them. But these guys don't know it's Jesus. The Bible tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus hears their conversation and he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And the question itself stops these guys in their tracks. Did you see that? It says they stood still. They're walking, they're headed. Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they stop in their tracks. They're stunned. They can't believe that anybody coming out of Jerusalem with the weekend they've just experienced, wouldn't know all that's going on about what's happened. And their sadness is written all over their face. They stood still, and the Bible says they looked sad. You could see it on their face. If you had seen them, you would have said, these two guys look sad. Why are they sad? They're sad because they believe that life exists without resurrection. Jesus has died and that's it. It's over. There's no getting unstuck from death. And so when they saw Jesus die, their hope died with him. Verse 18. Then one of them, Cleopas, answered and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. So it's inconceivable to Cleopas that someone could be coming out of Jerusalem and not know about the events that took place. And so he begins to catch him up and to fill him in on what's happened. And they tell him about Jesus. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet in word and deed. And in one sentence, he's trying to capture and summarize the ministry of Jesus. Mighty prophet. He spoke with unparalleled clarity and unrivaled authority. And his ministry was affirmed and confirmed with miracles and signs. And all of these things led these disciples to this conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the one that the, that the history books have been waiting for. The one who is going to come and redeem Israel and with it all of humanity. He's the one. We've been waiting for him to deliver us. 
But this weekend, he was delivered up by the Jewish leadership. They've rejected Jesus. And they handed him over to Roman government for execution by crucifixion. And with his execution, their hopes were crushed and their dreams died as Jesus died. Did you hear it? It says they had hoped he would redeem Israel. They had hoped. That's the past tense. They had hope, but now it's gone. All of their hope was wrapped up in Jesus. And when Jesus died, their hope went with them. Their hopes, you could say, were crucified right along with Jesus. Cleopas goes on, verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. So again, he's summarizing the events of of, of the weekend. It's actually um, Sunday afternoon, and he's telling them this morning, some women, some some of our disciples who were women, they had gone to the tomb to ensure that Jesus' body had been properly buried according to Jewish custom. You see, Jesus was crucified close to to the end of the day on Friday and they had to get his body down because according to Jewish law you couldn't leave a body hanging on the cross on the Sabbath and so they they got uh, a permission from Pilate to take the body down and they they did a rush job on his burial they didn't have the time to do it properly so they packed him with burial spices wrapped him up tight and they put him in the tomb and now these women are going back to make sure that they do it properly But when they get there, they expect to see a stone covering the tomb, a Roman guard standing there. But when they get there, the stone has been rolled away and the body of the Lord Jesus was gone. And this is what's interesting. Luke says the women were perplexed by the empty tomb. Now that's really, really important. We have to ask, why were they perplexed? Here's why. Because they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Think about it. If they were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, they would be going there expecting what? A stone rolled away. Jesus there saying, look, it's happened, right? They, were going, they, they would have been going there to confirm that. But why were they going to the tomb? To add burial spices. To make sure he's buried properly. If you're expecting resurrection... You're not going there to bury somebody, right? You'd be there going to greet your risen Savior. But they're perplexed because they did not expect to find a risen Savior. They expected to find a dead body. But what they found was an empty tomb. Resurrection was not on their radar. Now what do they do? From there, they go and tell the other disciples. They go and run and say, listen... We went to go bury him properly, and he was gone. Stones rolled away. There's an empty tomb. And they tell him all that they've seen. And do you think these uh, these men, these disciples, believed the women? No. Luke tells us uh, earlier in chapter 24 that they considered the account of the women to be an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Now, Peter and John... 
they go to see what's happened. They want to go and see for themselves. And even then, when Peter and John get there, with the evidence of the empty tomb, they did not believe that Jesus had risen from the grave. Now, I don't want you to miss this point. Deep down in their beliefs, they believed that life existed without resurrection. That's why they did not expect Jesus to rise, to, to rise again. Even though Jesus told them repeatedly throughout the end of his ministry that he was going to be delivered in the hands of sinful men. He told them he would be crucified. And he also told them, on the third day, I will rise again. He specifically told them. And yet, they did not expect it to happen. Why? Because Jesus' words did not overcome their deeply held belief that dead men stay dead. Think about it. That is a very powerful belief to overcome, isn't it? That dead men stay dead. People that you've buried, do you go out to the cemetery expecting to see them? No. You expect them to stay in the grave, right? That's your expectation. Death is so final and so formidable an opponent that nobody believes you can escape death. That once you've been declared dead, there is no coming back. Despite the fact that Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he would rise again, none of them expected Jesus to rise. They expected him to stay dead. Now, we are modern people. It's the year 2021. We often assume ancient people are stupid people. We do. We, we, we talk about, well, you know, th those ancient people, they're so gullible. They just think dead people are, you know, just rising from the grave. They're, they're easily... Uh, gullible. They believe anything. And friends, this is arrogant. Do you know that they were actually much more acquainted to, with death than we are? There were no hospitals back then. There were no ambulances back then. There's no morgues, not a single funeral home. In that time when people watched their loved ones die, they were right there. And then who prepared the bodies? They did. Who wrapped the bodies? They did. Who put them into the tombs? They did. We export all of that now to third parties. I would actually say we're far less acquainted with death than they do. They're much more subject matter experts on death than we are. And they know that when someone dies, there is no coming back. Also, if you're a student of history and you read the histories of the times, what people actually believed and thought in these times, here's what you're going to find. According to the Greco-Roman worldview, the idea of an embodied life after death, which is what resurrection is, was neither possible nor desirable. So if you were a Greek living in that time, you did not think resurrection was possible, nor, even if it was, it wasn't something you wanted anyway. Because in their philosophy, the soul is trying to escape the body. In their worldview, the body is like a prison, and your soul is trying to set free. So death actually is welcomed. It sets your soul free. You're not trying to re-enter a body. You're trying to escape from one. 
In fact, one Greek playwright, Aeschylus, wrote it like this. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. So the Greeks and the Romans at the time did not believe in resurrection. Now for the Jews, many of them outright rejected the whole notion of resurrection. And there were some who did believe, but it was in a future resurrection at the end of time. So if you had asked a Jew then about resurrection, they'd say, yes, I believe in resurrection, but that's happening at the very end of time. Nobody gets resurrected ahead of time. Okay? Now here's why that's important. What it means is nobody living at this time had a category in their mind for individual resurrection, let alone the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah. Now why am I saying all of this? Let me put it together. Because it was just as unbelievable for them as it is for you and me today. So if you're a skeptic in here and you go, I just don't believe in resurrection. What I'm telling you is you have the exact same mindset as every single person living at that time. Jesus' disciples included. That's why these two guys leave Jerusalem. Think about it. Why are they leaving? If they're so gullible and they believe that Jesus is risen, wouldn't they stay there in Jerusalem to meet Jesus? But for them, the gig was up. The party was over. The whole disciple-making movement was done. Their Redeemer was dead and there was nothing else to do except go home. Now, even though there's these reports coming in that the body is missing, the only logical conclusion to them is that someone must have stolen the body. At best, they might have thought that Jesus had survived the crucifixion. But if that were the case, they would have stayed in Jerusalem looking for this bloody, beat up, mostly dead, crucified Savior hiding in the streets of Jerusalem. Right? If they thought Jesus survived, like we put him in the tomb, but he must have woken up and unwrapped himself from all those, uh, uh, from all the burial clothes and 120 pounds of burial spices. And somehow, with the last bit of strength he had, he rolled away this massive tomb and then fought all these Roman guards. And now he's bloodied and beat up in the streets of Jerusalem. And we've got to go find him. But do you see them doing that? No. They went home. They weren't looking for a bloody, beat-up Jesus because they saw Jesus die. Friends, he wasn't mostly dead. He was fully dead. His executioners did their job. You know why? Because according to Roman law, if you're an executioner and you fail to execute the prisoner, you know what the penalty is? Death. They say you failed to do your job, so now you have to die. You think it was Bill Belichick who invented the phrase, do your job? No, it was the Romans. Those tasked with crucifixions were incredibly motivated to do their job, weren't they? It's either me or him, and so I guess he's got to go. And guess what? They got really good at it. It was the Persians who invented crucifixion, but it was the Romans who perfected it. Roman guards knew how to kill a person. And Jesus was no different. He's just a nobody. And their job is to kill him. 
And just to be sure he was dead as he hung already lifeless on the cross, the Bible tells us that a Roman guard drove a spear into his side and blood and water came out. You know why? Because blood comes out when you're cut and water comes down because they had pierced and punctured his lungs that had begun to fill with water because that's what happens when you're crucified. You drown from the inside out. And then Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. So the only conclusion that they could conceive with the evidence of the empty tomb was that someone must have changed or someone must have taken the body. And for them, that changed nothing. It doesn't matter that someone stole the body. Why? Because he's dead. It doesn't do them any good. Though it was inhumane and illegal to steal a body from a tomb, it did not change anything. Jesus was still dead, so all hope was lost. Death was the end of Jesus. And for these two disciples, death would one day be the end for them. And the same is true for you and me. Friends, if life ends with death and then darkness, then ultimately all of your life right now is eventually swallowed up by death. And there is no getting out of that mud. William Shakespeare captures this sentiment in his play, Macbeth. He says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Friends, if there is no resurrection, we're just like actors on a play, on a stage, doing our thing. We're there for a moment, and then the curtains close to be seen no more. And you might get really good at putting that reality in the back of your mind. And you might try to find as much meaning and happiness as this life has to offer. But if there is no resurrection, then ultimately death wins and despair is all you have. Friends, life minus resurrection equals despair. Thankfully, there's more to the story. Let's keep going to see our second point. Life plus resurrection equals hope. So Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So now Jesus begins to respond and he meets their lack of understanding with a gentle rebuke. He tells them that the reason they don't believe is that they're slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. What he's saying is ultimately the Old Testament told you that the coming Messiah would suffer and ultimately triumph. See, it's not a lack of information. It's a lack of belief. And I would say our problem is not a lack of information. It's a lack of belief. And so Jesus starts to unpack the Old Testament for these two disciples. He gives them a crash course in seeing Jesus from the Old Testament. He begins with the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
and working his way through the prophets, he shows them that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who would suffer and yet ultimately triumph. Tells them how the servant is crushed, how he's given as a guilt offering. If you read the book of Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53, you'll see that he bears the sins of many, yet he will see the works of his hands and will be satisfied. That his days will be prolonged and he will prosper. Now he doesn't come right out and say it. Doesn't say explicitly God will send his son and be crucified on a Roman cross on a third day rise again. But the framework in the Old Testament is there. There's these categories of a suffering yet triumphant Messiah. Jesus even told his disciples that it would happen. See, it's possible that Jesus can be in your midst and miss him. See, if you've got some predetermined idea of who Jesus is, if you've got some predetermined idea of what the Savior is going to be like, and he doesn't fit that description, then you're going to miss him. See, we have to come to God's word and hear those descriptions and form our expectation around what God says Messiah will be like, not what we say he'll be like. But he goes on in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he weren't going any further. But they, these two disciples, urged him strongly saying, Stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So Luke is telling us, as they approached Emmaus, they invited Jesus to stay with him. Because the day is getting uh, long and evening is approaching. And they want this traveler to stay with them so that he can keep explaining the things that he's been telling them. And as they begin their meal, this honored guest, he actually takes the role of the host. And he's the one who gives thanks for the meal. He's the one that breaks the bread and he's the one who distributes it to his friends. And verse 31 says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he, Jesus, vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, it was in that moment when Jesus broke the bread that their eyes were opened. Earlier it says their eyes were kept from seeing him, but now the veil has lifted and they see him. And just as quickly as they see him, he vanishes from their sight. And as they try to get their minds and hearts around what happened, they remembered how those, the embers of hopes that lie dormant um, uh, in, in, their ho- in their souls had started to come alive in their hearts. Have you ever um, had a fire in the fireplace and then it goes out and it seems, you even put your hand over and it seems cold, seems like there's nothing there. But if you kind of um, poke at the, at, the, at the pile, you'll see there's these little embers still burning, still hot. And that's what they're saying is, is, is we thought all hope was lost. But as we started to talk to Jesus, as we started to hear from him, those embers were fanned into flame and did not our hearts burn as he started to tell us about the Savior. And they started to believe in the hope of redemption and resurrection. And at the time, they couldn't put all the pieces together, but at the time, they knew something special was happening. That's why they asked Jesus to stay with them. And when their eyes finally saw Jesus, 
when they became fully aware that it was the risen Savior sitting with them, eating with them, talking with them, everything changed. Friends, only the presence of a risen Savior could have changed their mind. Only an encounter with the living Lord would have overcome the belief that death is so final. Only seeing Jesus face to face could convince them that death had been defeated. So as before, as they're walking on the road, life minus resurrection equaled despair. But now seeing Jesus, the equation changed. That life plus resurrection equals hope. Look what happens next, verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 other disciples, those who were gathered with them together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As Jesus leaves, as their, as their hearts become flooded with hope and grace, their hope is restored. They come, their hearts were full as they came to see the truth and goodness and beauty of the gospel. And right after Jesus left them, the Bible says they ran back to Jerusalem down that seven mile road to do what? Tell everyone the good news. Do you see the change? And when they got back to Jerusalem, they're greeted with more good news. When they come busting in the doors, the other disciples say, we've seen the risen Savior. He appeared to Simon. And then Cleopas and his, and his friend are like, you wouldn't believe it, but we've seen the risen Savior too. And as they share good news upon good news, it's this, that Jesus has risen and he's risen indeed. See, before they see Jesus, everyone is dejected and despondent. Then the reality of the resurrection the defeat of death, the cure for the curse comes flooding in and they cannot contain their hope. What got these disciples unstuck? The resurrection. Seeing Jesus got them unstuck. Think back to the Ever Given, that large golden class container ship stuck in the Suez Canal. What got it unstuck? These little tugboats. You ever, you, you, maybe you've seen some of these pictures. You see these little tugboats compared to this massive ship. These seemingly insignificant and unimpressive boats, yet they're able to pull thousands of tons beyond their own stature. It's a beautiful picture of the resurrection. You see, Jesus was a nobody from nowhere who died a common though gruesome death. You know, Jesus wasn't the first nobody from nowhere to be crucified, and he wouldn't be the last. We often think it was Jesus and Jesus alone who was crucified, but do you know that they crucified thousands upon thousands of people that you have never heard of before? You know why? Because after they were crucified and left to rot on the cross, for wild animals to come and scavenge from their bodies. And once they fall down to be thrown into these mass graves. The reason you've never heard of any of these other thousands upon thousands of other people. Is because when they were crucified they stayed dead. That's why you've never heard of them. What's different about Jesus' death is that he didn't stay dead. He rose again and defeated death. Now, did you know that every historian writing at this time, Roman, Jewish, and Christian, all affirm and agree on this point. 
If you look at the Roman, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, and Pliny the Younger, and if you read through the gospel writers, all of them agree on this point. You can actually go read this for yourselves. They all say there was a man named Jesus who grew up in the town of Nazareth. He was crucified on a Roman cross under the reign of Pontius Pilate, and he died. Friends, it is a historical fact. If you deny the historicity of that, then you really have no basis to claim that anything historical has ever happened. Because how does history work? We look back on historical sources. We try to corroborate them. We try to look at those sources and come to a conclusion about what has actually happened. Here you have three groups of people who do not agree on much of anything. Roman, Christian, and Jew all saying there was a man from Jesus, I mean from Nazareth. His name was Jesus. He was crucified under a historical reign of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. All of them say the same thing. It is a historical fact. Now you have to do something with that fact. Would a forever dead Jesus create Christianity? If Jesus died and stayed dead, why would Christianity emerge from that? Would a forever dead Jesus embolden dejected and dispersed disciples to start the greatest movement of faith of all time. What would have turned these two disciples back from their road of going home? You remember at the cross, all the disciples fled. They didn't want to be crucified as well. And what would change them to embolden them to start the greatest movement of all time? Would a forever dead Jesus lead the apostles, every single one of them, to die a martyr's death? No. Only a risen indeed Jesus could get the movement unstuck. See, friends, if you're here today and you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a burden on you to explain how a nobody crucified on a Roman cross started the world's most prolific movement of all time. Think about it. Who was Jesus? He was born into poverty. He lived 33 years, most of which were in abject obscurity. For 30 of his 33 years, nobody even knew who he was. He never wrote a book. He never held a public office. He was crucified as an enemy of the state between two thieves. And yet now, 2,000 years later... Over 2.3 billion people have built their life on the groundbreaking claim that he has risen indeed. And I don't mean 2.3 billion people of all time. I'm saying right now today, approximately 2.3 billion people are celebrating what we're celebrating today. That Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. We forget thousands upon thousands of people were crucified under the heavy hand of Rome. And we don't know any of their names. Because they went in the ground and stayed there. So if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, here's what you have to do. To at least be intellectually honest. You have to answer 
how a nobody from nowhere transformed a group of nobodies from nowhere into the largest movement of followers across time, geography, language, ethnicities that the world has ever seen. That just doesn't happen accidentally. Something has to spark that fan, that fire into flame. See, in the wake of the death of Christ, his followers were leaderless, they were scattered, and they were in complete despair. But something changed them. And you have to ask, what changed them? Something awakened in them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Peter, the leader of the disciples, remember his last interaction with Jesus? He, uh, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, never, Lord, I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. Fast forward a few hours, Jesus, or Peter's denying him three times as Jesus is wa- watches him do that. And right after the, re- the, the crucifixion, he went into hiding. Fifty days later, this puny coward of a man who is so fearful of his other Jewish brothers and sisters that he's denying that he was with Jesus. Fifty days later, you know what you see Peter doing? Boldly preaching without fear in the city of Jerusalem about a savior who defeated death. To the very people he was so ashamed to say that he was among, 50 days later, he's preaching one of the very first sermons of all time. Men of Israel, Acts 2, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's what Peter preached. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter would later go on to be imprisoned and crucified upside down for his faith and belief that Jesus was the Son of God. Thomas, you remember Thomas, the doubter? As the other disciples were believing in this resurrected Jesus, Thomas said, never. Not unless I see him face to face and I stick my fingers in the marks of the cross will I ever believe. His band of brothers who were telling him, Thomas, we've seen him. Thomas goes, I don't believe you. After he sees Jesus, he was transformed from Thomas the doubter to Thomas the apostle. He became the first missionary to India. James, Jesus' half-brother, he thought his brother was insane. In the Gospels, James says he's crazy. He's out of his mind. My, my brother, my older brother Jesus, he's, he's got a few screws loose. He was ashamed of Jesus. Paul tells us that James saw the risen Jesus. And not only did he believe, he was transformed from being ashamed of his brother to calling himself a slave of Christ. I don't know if any of you have brothers and sisters. How many of you are willing to call yourself a slave of your brother or sister. He went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Friends, all I'm trying to do is say this. Something happened to change their lives. All of us have to ask, what was it? 
What is the most historically plausible thing that changed the life of these individuals? Something happened to uproot that deeply held belief that life ends in death. What uproots a belief like that? Something happened 2,000 years ago that changed the hinge of time. And every single one of us has to give an answer for it. What Luke is telling us, what the gospel writers are telling us, is that what changed everything was the resurrection. Before that Easter Sunday, death defeated life every single time. After that Sunday, life defeated death. Friends, Luke 24 is about a seven-mile road that changed everything for two weary disciples. We started this church called Seven Mile Road and Waltham and for the surrounding communities because we want to come along people who themselves are walking down helpless roads. And there we want to introduce them to the risen Jesus so that they can find life, place, and meaning in Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning and you believe that death has been defeated, that Jesus is risen, and that there is life after life after death, then my encouragement to you is start living like it. We often think that the resurrection is a doctrine for tomorrow. It's like good news out there. But friends, it is good news every single day. It's good news not just for when you die. It's good news for today. You can have hope in the everyday realities of life because you know, ultimately, you'll never get so stuck as to be without the hope of life. And because of that, you're never, ever in your days facing the hardest problem. Your hardest problem, getting unstuck from death, has already been taken care of. And that puts everything else into perspective and finally if you're not a christian i want to challenge you maybe for the first time in your life to answer the question what happened two thousand years ago that changed everything if you're intellectually honest you can't say that there was no such thing as a man named jesus who lived and died under the reign of pontius pilate that's historical fact there's not even a reputable scholar in the world today that holds to that opinion Everyone just takes uh, it as history that Jesus died. But what you need to ask is, what happened? What would explain 2,000 years of Christian history? Now, it's easy to get hung up on all these other questions in regards to Christianity. But what I'm telling you is, for Christianity, this is the fundamental, central question. In fact, Paul said, if Jesus is not risen, Christianity is a sham. It's really just a lame hobby. If there is no risen Savior, there is no Christianity. Don't get hung up on any other question. All other questions that you have sit under this question. If Jesus died and stayed died, Christianity really is a stupid, stupid hobby. But if Jesus died and rose again, If that is true, look at me, then it is the most profound reality-altering truth in the entire world. 
and it's the only truth worth building your life around. If you do not believe, you owe it to yourself to consider the question with intentionality and honesty. We've got a book back there that does so in 80 short pages that is going to look at some of the uh, evidence for the resurrection. It'll help you at least begin to investigate and ask those questions. Now I want to close with the same verse where we began. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.